Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 here this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. We just started this chapter last week. And there are three great themes under the title of this message, Be Imitators of God. Be Imitators of God. And there are three things that we're going to see in these six verses. The plea we saw last week, and we'll do that by way of review in just a moment. And then we're going to look at the prohibitation, the pro, pardon me, the prohibition of what the Lord calls us to do. We have to say yes to certain things, but we have to say no to other things, to walk and to be faithful to Him. And then we see the punishment. We could say it this way. We see the benefits of genuine love. We also see the characteristics of a counterfeit love. And we also see the consequences of that love, of a counterfeit love. So be an imitator of God. This is our call. This is what we are to be as brothers and sisters of Christ. We are to imitate the Lord in all things. We are to walk as he walks. So let's look at these verses together. Ephesians 5, 1 to 6. I just want to read this here for us. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostle says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's relationship. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Just yesterday, while enjoying the celebration of our wonderful nation by God's grace, I was noticing some very disturbing headlines. Maybe you did too. Just this last week, as part of Ramadan in the Islamic faith, if you don't know what Ramadan is, in 2015, Ramadan is from June 17th to July 17th. It's one of the five duties of every Muslim that they must do. Ramadan is one of them. It's their season of fasting. It's not a real fast because what they do is they simply trade daylight for nighttime, meaning this. It's against the teachings of Muhammad in the Quran to eat during daylight. But from sundown to sunup, during the evening and dark hours, you may eat as much as you want. So if you alter your day schedule for a month and sleep during the day and arise at nighttime, you can fast. But that isn't a real fast. I have fasted before seven days without food or water. I have fasted up to 40 days with only water and a little bit of juice. And 
Isaiah 58, if you would like to mark it down, is a key section on fasting. And fasting that the Lord delights in is that which gives up the use of normal nourishment to feast upon the Word of God. And it's done for several reasons. One of them is to lift the heavy burdens. One of them is to help and to feed the poor. In other words, the money that you would spend on yourself for food, you give away to someone else. It's also to shed the bonds of sin and The Lord does wonderful things, whether it's a day or whether it's 40 days. Fasting and prayer is a wonderful thing. But here the Muslim people do this for a month during the celebration of Ramadan. I don't know if you saw this, but some Islamic or Muslim terrorists executed this last week 74 children because they ate during the daytime. That's why they were killed. Tragic, isn't it? Shocking. That's what false worship of a false God does. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no hope. There's no grace. There's control. There's death. There's slaughter. Even young kids, their only crime, they ate and broke their fast. Terrible things. So again, we have much to be thankful for in the church and in our nation. But we need to pray for people, especially missionaries that are in those kind of very tumultuous lands, that they are protected by God and His grace. It's because of this I think our text is very poignant to us today in the human condition. Again, as we see society starting to spiral down and men and women pursuing things that are not honorable before a holy God, and then our government condoning those same things and almost legalizing an immorality. I had some folks come up to me this last week and say, well, Steve, can, can you actually legislate morality? And I said, well, of course, that's what the purpose of law is. Any judge will tell you that. Constitutionally, local, state, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, it's all a legislation of a certain unified moral ethic on how we are to function in society and in community. So all of law legislates some sort of morality, but what you cannot legislate is godliness. That's an act of grace come by God through Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in sinners like me and you. So the problems that are in our nation cannot be solved. The moral maladies cannot be solved by correct politics, even though we want to stand as love for our neighbor and what is good, right, lovely, and true and honor those and pray for those over us in government. We don't want to be political meddlers. We don't want to be insurrectionists. We don't want to be treasonous in our speech or in our actions, but yet we do want to speak truth to authority, as John the Baptist did, as the Apostle Paul did, as our Lord Jesus did to the powers that would be. We need to speak the gospel truth to them. So this morning, as we come to this text, I just want to give you a few thoughts Filthy lusts that the Apostle Paul calls here as impurity or immorality, these things must be rooted out. Sin must not be embraced. It must be detested. It must be dreaded. It must taste sour to our hearts. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, he said, 
The Lord will not even hear your prayer if you cherish iniquity in your heart. Think about that for a moment. If we hold it dear, if we treasure it, if we covet it, if we put it in high esteem above all things, if our sin has become dear to us, the Lord will not even hear our prayer. So there are cautions against every kind of sin that Paul gives us here. So our cheerfulness, beloved, should show itself in God's glory as living faithful lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our happiness and joy comes from. A covetous man makes a God of his money, places that hope and confidence and delight in worldly things, but the true believer finds his joy and confidence in God alone. And that's why this morning you might have a full bank account. You might have a lean bank account. You may have many worldly goods. You may possess no worldly goods. Can I tell you, if you have Jesus Christ in either state, you are content and you have everything that you need. So the kingdom of grace does not belong to those that simply indulge the fleshly lusts of this world or seek for their own glory. It's kingdom glory that we're about. So the good news of the gospel is the most vilest transgressors can have grace, can know new life and the forgiveness of sin so that they may be children not of disobedience but of obedience, not children of wrath by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, but children of the Son of His love. Sinners not knowing some way what they do. I know that's how it was for me when I was unsaved. We grope in the dark. But when the grace of God came and opened up the blind eyes of my heart, then I saw clearly, maybe that's how it is with you. You remember those days before you came to Jesus and, and the sin that you used to do, maybe there might be a tinge of guilt or regret, but there would never be divine repentance or restoration, or divine transformation. It was simply making your way through another day as opposed to real repentance and obedience. So what was unfruitful works of darkness for the impenitent sinner? Destruction and wrath and weeping and gnashing of teeth awaiting that kind of life. What joy there is for the one, the person that has come not to be ashamed of the gospel, who has come to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put off the things of the flesh. So by way of review last week, this is what we saw as the Apostle Paul starts out and he gives a plea. He gives a plea to these dear believers in Ephesus. And he's pleading with them after that great fourth chapter of Ephesians to put off the old man, to put on the new to say yes to him and no to sin, to live a daily life of repentance, he begins with a plea. And if you'll just look with me there at verses 1 and 2 in Ephesians 5, he says, therefore, and that therefore connects all of the fourth chapter of Ephesians. He says, therefore, in light of those things, in light of God's grace, in light of that he is a prisoner of the Lord, in light of the unity that we have in the bond of the Spirit and peace, in light of being new people, walking new, walking in the light of these things, he said, be imitators of God. There's the command. But notice, it's couched in love as beloved children. 
dear friend of mine, Dr. Josh McDowell, told me years ago, way before I was married and way before I had any kids, he said, Steve, remember this one thing. When you have kids, remember this in child rearing one day. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. I love that. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. What is he saying? You can set down orderly homes. You can set down rules and standards and regulations in your house. But if there's no relationship with your kids, it's going to drive them away. It'll lead them to rebellion. But listen, those same rules, those same godly standards, with the intimacy of relationship between mom and dad and the kids, doesn't lead to rebellion. It leads to intimacy, doesn't it? The real bond of love. So this is why Paul is saying here, be imitators of God, and here's our motivation. We're beloved children. We're not under his wrath. We're not under his judgment. We're no longer under sin. We're no longer sons of disobedience. We no longer face an eternal hell. We are beloved children. Romans 8, it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, intimacy, relationship. And then he gives us a command. The first sign that we're being imitators of God is we walk in love. This is the plea, walk in love. Peripateo, keep step with Christ. It means to line up single file. We want to pattern and master the master's life. And he gives us how we do that. Because love here in Scripture is not an emotional thing. It's not even conditioned upon a response. Love here is self-sacrificial. It doesn't depend on someone being loving towards you, lovely to be around, or even that's doing acts of kindness or love. He simply says, walk in love, and now he gives us the example. How should we love? How should we love our enemies? How should we love when there's friction? How should we love wayward children? How should we love people that we care for but we're at odds with? And he says this, as Christ loved us. There's the standard. As Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us. There's love. Sacrifice. Christ loved us. We're to walk in that kind of love. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, the object of biblical love is always Jesus, and love is never used in an arbitrary or pedantic form in Scripture. It is used always in connection with the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him, 1 John, as a propitiation for our sins. This is love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. His love in Scripture is not a general blanket that simply says, I love all people uh, without distinction and without any kind of exception. No, because if God could love all without the cross, then Jesus didn't have to come and die. But here, his love is rooted to the cross. I had put up on the church website, I hope you visit it daily, there's some wonderful articles we have on there for you, and, I, and the messages are caught up to date, and I hope that you'll enjoy those things and even recommend it to other friends and neighbors. But one of the things on there that I tried to encourage people on is in the book of Acts, 
when the initial unfolding of the gospel was taking place, do you realize the word love is never mentioned in the entire book of Acts, though the theme is the work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel? It's an amazing thing. I had to check it the first time I heard a pastor say that many, many years ago. I'd like to double check, and so I got online, and back then we didn't have iPads and cell phones like we do smartphones, and you know, I had to do a lot of research, and it was a true thing. Check it out sometime for yourselves. Not one time is the word love mentioned in the entire book of Acts, which was strange to me because in our day and time, we usually lead with God is love. But here in the unfolding of the gospel, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, he never began the gospel with love, but he began as Jesus did with repent. Ten times in the book of Acts, that word repent or repentance is used to describe the gospel. Repent and believe. Even Jesus said, in Matthew, when he began his ministry, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. It begins with a turning from one's sin and a turning to God. It's a turning away from the dead idols of our own hearts and a turn to the living and true God. Now, is love a part of the gospel? Of course it is. But it's interesting, in our day and time where love seems to be the only attribute people want to attribute to a holy God, may I encourage you this week, when you go to a lost world to share the gospel, may I encourage you, first, as the leading edge of truth, encourage them, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and then tell them, and even put it and frame it in the form of a question, would you like to know the Lord? Would you like to know the love of God? Because the only way to truly know God's love is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Begin by calling them to repentance. You're marching in one direction. You turn around and come the other way. You're heading in one way, and you want to turn and turn from your sin. Embrace the God of Scripture. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father because with the tongue you confess and with the heart you believe unto salvation. Call them to repentance and believe. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then tell them, this is the only way to know the great love of God in Jesus Christ through our Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful truth. So Paul says, as Christians now, now that we are redeemed, we've experienced God's love in our redemption. And he says, if you've experienced that, you need to walk in that. And the way we walk with each other, Christ loved us, gave himself for us. And notice this, he did it as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The, the, both the words are important. You remember in John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for the sheep. This is what he's saying. An offering means that he willingly laid his life down in the cross for us. A sacrifice, it cost him everything. He is the perfect lamb of God, the sinless high priest, the perfect son of man. And he had to go to the cross for us. He had to live the perfect life. We call it active obedience. The life Adam could never live. Jesus lived it. His passive obedience. He surrendered to the divine plan of redemption that was exercised now in the cross between the Father and the Son. He became the penal substitution for our sins. 
It was of his own will that he did this. He laid down his life, even though wicked men drove in the nails and mocked him and spit upon him and put the nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side and the crown of thorns on his head. Yet it was by God's predetermined plan that Jesus went to the cross willingly of his own volition as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sin. And he took God's wrath. He took our sin. He took the guilt of it. He took the penalty of it. He was passive, as it were, on the cross, embracing as the slain Lamb of God for the sins of those that he came to save. And then he rose bodily for our redemption. He gave himself up for us. It was a a fragrant offering. If you notice here, in last week's, Time, we saw what kind of an offering that this was out of the Old Testament. We're just going to list them here for you again. But we saw, number one, the burnt offering. The burnt offering. Uh, this depicted Christ's total devotion to God in giving his very life to obey and please his Father. That's in Leviticus 1, 1 to 17. That's the burnt offering. Secondly, we saw the grain offering, the meal offering. This is in Leviticus 2. It depicted Christ's perfection. It depicted his absolute perfection. This is what, again, Ed is going to be dealing in his Sunday school class. Old Testament, the the shadow and type. New Testament, the reality in Jesus. Paul calls it in Colossians 2. The Old Testament is is the shadow. The New Testament is the substance. Here, the third, we saw the peace offering. Not only the burnt offering, the grain offering, but the peace offering. The peace offering found in Leviticus chapter 3 and Leviticus 4 depicted his making peace between God and man. So the perfection of who he is, the sufficiency of his sacrifice, him making peace. And all of those offerings, beloved, spoke of, of what was pleasing to God. Of each of the scriptures there, it provided and said it was a soothing aroma to the Lord. What does it mean? Like Paul says in Ephesians 5, it was a fragrant offering, a beautiful sacrifice. To make it an aroma satisfying to God, it means that God was pleased. God was pleased. There is no other sacrifice needed. He is completely satisfied and pleased in the fragrant offering and sacrifice, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. It pleased the Father. It pleased the Father. Before we go to the next point here, would you go with me to Isaiah chapter 53? This again is the song of the suffering servant. It's the most familiar of all the chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, and it speaks of Jesus Christ on the cross as a redemption for many, justifying those who turned against him. And notice in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Notice that. It pleased God. It pleased God to see the Lord smitten, afflicted, crushed for our iniquities. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, it was God's pleasure. The cross was God's pleasure. The cross was a fragrant aroma of blessing. The cross was the beautiful rock of myrrh, as it were, crushed, the perfume that comes from the beautiful crushing of that myrrh stone. And no wonder the wise men brought the Christ child gold his wealth, his king, frankincense, the beautiful aroma, and myrrh, the crushed rock. They're honoring him as savior, king, prophet, priest, master, Lord, the one on whom God would chastise for our peace. My brothers and sisters, that's the glory of the cross. Now, the other offerings we saw, there's two other offerings, the sin offering in Leviticus 4 and the trespass offering in Leviticus 5. I don't know if you've noticed this, but chapters 1 through 5 of Leviticus each depict each one of those five offerings. Now, the sin offering, the trespass offering is not described in the Old Covenant as being a sweet aroma. Why? Even though it's depicting Christ It depicted him as bearing the sin of those that he would save. And it was the sinfulness of sin that was thrust on Christ. So much though he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He's not only fulfilling that as Messiah, but he is showing that the Lord God, God the Father, It was pouring his wrath out upon his son. That was the real suffering of Calvary so that we could be, have peace with him forever. So here we are. He makes a plea. Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Make it the habit of your life. Present act of imperative. It's a command, but it's in the present tense. It's to be the habit of our life. And so he says here, walk in love as Christ loved you, gave himself up for you. That's what Christian love looks like. Listen, anything less than that is sentimentality. Anything less than that isn't love. It's selfish desire. Biblical love costs a cross. It's everything. Christ is the fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. But there's a negative side. That's the positive side to true love. But here's the negative side. Number two this morning, the prohibition. The prohibition. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and notice here in verses 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4. Paul says, you're saved. You're beloved children. You've put off the old man. You're putting on the new. You want to live for him. So now he says, walk in love. Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. That's the character of the new birth, the new life. But now he gives a series of negative things. Here's a counterfeit love. The true love we see is Christ's love. 
But here's the counterfeit love. Here's the love that's the snake in the grass. Here's the pretend love. Here's the love that wants to use and hurt and abuse. Here's the love that is only motivated by self. Here is the love that is really driven not by self-sacrifice, but by our devious, lustful ways. And so he says here, sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper with all the saints. This is a a huge passage of Scripture in what the Apostle is calling us to here. Notice the three things here. Immorality, impurity, greed, some of your translations might say. The ESV translation is covetousness. Let it not even be mentioned. It's not proper that saints that want to live as if we're going to glory should have these things mark the habit of our lives. Listen, we all sin. We say it here a lot in thought, word, or deed. But it should not be the pattern of our lives. It should not be the practice of our lives. It should not be the habit of our lives. Sexual immorality. You know this word, porneia, from where we get the English word for pornographic. This is talking about harlotry. Fornication, adultery, it includes incest, homosexuality, bestiality. Anything that is devious apart from the pure love of Christ. He's speaking here of the defilement. So he says flee it all. It's a broad brush, my brothers and sisters. It's a broad brush. Flee any kind of sexual immorality. Notice the second word here, impurity, akatharsis, akatharsia. This is lust, profligate living. This even goes down to impure motives. This is talking about the moral sense of wanton lustfulness or luxuriousness, physical uncleanness. He says, don't give in to it. Don't let it be a part of your heart. Don't let it be a part of your thoughts and your mind. You have to flee these things. Sexual immorality, all impurity. And then notice the third word in the chain, covetousness. This is greed. Greedy desire to have more. Avarice. It's the jealousy that comes from not having and your neighbor does and rather than rejoicing in his or her success, we covet it. And to covet it, we make it an idol and it becomes the driving passion and worship of our lives. And that's why Paul said, if the law didn't say you're a covetous man, he says, I wouldn't have known I was covetous. He was saying that he was an idolater and needed forgiveness, needed grace. Paul is equating these three things, greed, covetousness, immorality, sexual desire, impurity of any kind. He said, it should not be named among you. Should not be named among you. A a couple of scriptures here that you see above, I won't cover all of them. They will be on the website a little bit later today, but Notice this in Romans 1, 28 to 32. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God and gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he begins the list with evil, covetousness, malice, 
envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He goes, they know God's righteous decree, but they willful. Their defiance is willful. It is abject. The rebellion is profound. And they run after those that will give hearty approval of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verses 9 to 11, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, you might say, brother, that's impossible. If we're in the world but not to be of it, what is he talking about? Here's how he defines it. He says, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He said, if you're going to do that, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, he says, you would have to go out of the world. But he goes, now I'm writing to you not to associate anyone that bears the name of brother. By the way, this is not a true brother in Christ. This is one that simply says, yeah, I love Jesus. And they're shooting up on Friday night. Yeah, I love Jesus, and they're sleeping around town. Yeah, I love Jesus, and I'm giving myself over to all kinds of pornographic literature. Yeah, I love the Lord, and I'm going to do this. No, that is a Christian in name only. He said he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, and idolater, reviler, all these things. He goes, don't even eat with such a one. It's by mere profession. And you don't want to be categorized by that. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse 19 to 21, Paul says the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Hey, listen, if you don't think playing with tarot cards can be a damaging thing to your life, think again, it's right here. If you don't think watching over a Ouija board has, is no big deal, it's right here, sorcery. If you don't think reading your horoscope can affect you, it's satanic. It can affect you. Be wise in these things. Trust the Lord God for your future, for your activity. In fact, with, with sorcery here, he uses a Greek word, pharmakia, which was synonymous with witchcraft, but it means the magical arts, and it also meant the drug of the day, the pharmacy of the day. Listen, drugs and the occult go hand in hand. They always go hand in hand. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, desire, covetousness, idolatry. You're seeing the pattern here, beloved, aren't you? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 7, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God do, that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. He says, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. There's the antidote. There's the antidote. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers or murderers, sexual immoral, practicing homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
It's a sign of the end times. People in 2 Timothy 3 will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, slanderous, unappeasable, self-controlled, brutal, treacherous, reckless, swollen up with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's the taxonomy on a pagan society. No wonder Paul says in Titus 3.3, he says, be compassionate to unsafe people. Why? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Listen, gospel truth gives us a heart of love for unsafe people caught in those things. And it certainly should give us a restoring heart for Christians that maybe have been ambushed by sin, like a David in Scripture. We don't tolerate the sin, but yet we go and we walk with that one till they're restored in fellowship and strong again spiritually. Why? It could be next time you or I caught or ambushed in a sin that's dramatic and we need to stay humble before each other, don't we? Grace doesn't wink at sin, but this is the truth of it. So this is what Paul is saying. Notice now, he says this isn't proper for all the saints, but notice in verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, coarse joking, crude joking. Some of your translations might say the wittiness, wittiness in telling coarse jokes. You think it's clever, you think it's witty. I want to unpack this just for a moment here. Let there be no filthiness, obscene. This is the obscene. This is making a joke about the obscenities of life and thinking it's cute. You know, the brothers were on the golf course and somebody comes out with something and no one else hears it. But listen, it's forbidden for the Christian. Humor is good, but our humor should not be to the gutter of this world. It should be to the glory of God, right? Right? So he says, let there be no filthiness, filthiness. Notice here, then he progresses to foolish talk. Here's the word for foolish talk, buffoonery. My parents used to use that word with me when I was a kid, when I was a young teenager. Steve, don't be a buffoon. I know what it means now. (laughs) Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't be silly. And then look at this other phrase, the last phrase, or coarse joking. This is difficult to translate, but here's what it's meaning. Don't give repartee. Don't make it a witty venture with vulgarity. Don't be the court jester of sin. Literally, It can be translated, that which turns easily. That which turns easily. Now, this has a positive aspect in that you want someone to be versatile, to go with the flow, not to be hung up and irritable on little minor things that may interrupt someone's schedule. That's the positive side of this. But the negative side, in the context the Apostle Paul is using it, he says, Don't be telling coarse jokes 
with an ease going from that which is godly to ungodly. That shows a lack of conscience. See, that which can adapt and go with the flow and turn easily in many courses of life, it's a positive trait. They adapt, they overcome. But he says, don't have a turning easily, a wittiness, that you're going from holy speech to unholy. And ease away from what is godly conversation to what is ungodly. Don't make it that way. Don't make it an easy thing. He says these things are absolutely out of place, improper for the Christian. What's the antidote? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Boast of God. Boast of things that he delights in. Boast of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let your tongue be filled with things that bring honor to the Lord. The tongue is a fire. We saw it a few weeks ago. With it, we bless God and we curse men. And Paul says, you shouldn't have an ease in doing that. Man, if you can go from boasting about the Lord Jesus Christ to saying obscene, dirty, coarse, joking, detestable things and engage in that humor and it's a life of ease going back and forth through those two worlds, let me tell you, at that point, you're nothing but a schizophrenic Christian should not be that life of ease. Not with that. There should not be a wittiness. But he says, rather, it's the expression of thanksgiving. Lastly, this morning, Paul makes a plea. Paul's saying there's a prohibition against counterfeit love, and we've seen that, that kind of love. But my brothers and sisters, there's a punishment. This is... This is hard. This is the weight of glory depicted in wrath. Notice what the apostle says here, verses 5 and 6. He says, you may be sure of this, absolute confidence, no wavering. Here's the outcome of that other kind of life. You think you're fooling God? Not a chance. He says, everyone, and he gives these same words again, that is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous, that is an idolater. He's clarifying those things again. He says, you're that in your life, you're practicing that. He says, you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. None. None. Grace that saves us is not cheap grace. It's costly. And it's an inheritance, according to 1 Peter 1, that is undefiled, reserved in heaven, can never be corrupted. It will never fade away because that's what's rooted in Christ and his holiness. But listen, if you say you're saved and you're living a life of debauchery, you're living a life of rebellion, you're living a life of patterned, habitual sinfulness with no repentance, You're fooling yourself, and I love you enough to say to you this morning, test yourself to see if you're in the faith because you might not be a Christian. Paul says, be sure of this. There's no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ for that one. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you. See, there's a, a surety that this kind of punishment, but he says it's a deceptiveness with empty words. What's he saying? People will have a rationale for their sin. Don't buy into it. Don't do the dance. In other words, don't skip around it. 
He says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Wow. There it is. There it is. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 9, the Apostle Paul brings us to the nexus of this issue. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. In Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 8, we know that what a man believes determines how they behave. And so he says, don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, in chapter 3 of Colossians, in verse 6, he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, but now you've put them all away. You know Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. But let's go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32. I think this is the foundational text for this. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 to 41. He says, see now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. What does he mean? There's no Buddha, there's no Krishna, there's no Tao, there's no Confucius, there's no Muhammad, no other God. He is it. He is the Lord God. He says, I kill and I make alive. He's sovereign. I wound and I heal. He's all-powerful. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He's omnipotent. He says, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword with my hand takes hold of judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-hand heads of the enemy. You want to go up against God? You want to go up against his omnipotent hand, his omniscient holiness and seeing eye of justice? He'll slay you to the bone. No wonder Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, therefore, he says, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You don't want to play with God. You don't want to play politics with God. You don't want to treat him as the Lord of the ribbon covenant ribbon-cutting ceremony at your political campaign. You don't want to do that. You don't want to dishonor the Lord. You want to treat him with reverence and awe, with holy divine respect. We want to honor him. Revelation 19 says, After I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. You see, beloved, our God is an omnipotent warrior for his holiness. No wonder Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear ISIS, in other words. Don't fear them. Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Who are we to fear? Who are we to honor? Who are we to respect in reverential awe? He says, but I will warn you. Notice, this is Jesus speaking of his Father, whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Eternal judgment. The Lord even could be referring to himself because John 5 tells us that the Father has given the Son judgment. As we conclude this morning, go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Here it is. You can see now why the gospel begins in Luke with repent, why each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the synoptics and John, all begin the gospel with repent and believe. Repent for the kingdom is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flee the wrath to come. When the Pharisees showed up at John the Baptist's baptism, John looked at him and he said, you brood of vipers, judgment. And he said, who told you about repentance and keeping the fruits thereof? Flee the wrath to come. John was focused on the eternal and so should we be. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and here in verse 8 to 10, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, call people to obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's hell. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. No wonder in verse 12 he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you see, that's that's who we must serve. That's who we must honor. This is written by a gentleman by Nicholas Van Hoffman. He had a penetrating column which he called the Mush God. And I would like to read it for you today. It could have been written for our generation. Here's the God that most people would like to serve. Listen to this. The mush god has been known to appear to millionaires on golf courses. He appears to politicians at ribbon-cutting ceremonies and to clergymen speaking the invocation on national television at either a Democratic or Republican national convention. 
The Mush God's presence is felt during Brotherhood Week and when Rotary Clubs come together. He's the lifeless deity of any president when referring to suggesting peace on some stage in the Middle East because the Egyptian president and Israeli prime minister both worship the great mushy one. The mush god has no theology to speak of. He's a cream of wheat deity. Isn't that good? I love that. The mush god has no particular creed, no tenets of faith, nothing that would make it difficult for believer and non-believer alike to lower one's head when the temporary chairman tells us the reverend rabbi father or so-and-so will lead us in an innocuous harmless prayer for the God of the public occasion is not a jealous God. He's a mush God. You can even invoke him to start a convention. Won't be offended. God of the Rotary, God of the Optimist Club, protector of the buddy system, the mush God is the Lord of the secular ritual, of the necessary but hypocritical forms and formal lights that hush the divisive and the divisive. The mush God is a serviceable God whose laws are not chiseled on tablets of stone, but they're written conveniently in sand. They're open to amendment, qualification, and eraser. This is a God that will compromise with you, make allowances for you, and declare all wars on that which is holy and hallowed before the real God, end quote. I'm so glad we don't serve the mush God here. We don't serve a cream of wheat deity here. We serve the one living and true God. And my brothers and sisters, it's honor and love for that God that we go to the world this week to call them to repent of the mush God they serve, the compromised God they serve, the convenient God they serve, the God they've recreated in their own image that will never convict them of sin but embrace it as an alternative thing to do. We are to go to these people, not in judgment, but in love, calling them to repent so that they could know the true Lord God of all. And isn't it our joy and delight to do so? Let's pray. Lord, you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. You have come in the person of Jesus Christ and laid down your life on the cross for our sins. We don't deserve it. It's grace. We're not worthy of it. It's grace. We don't deserve anything, Lord, Accept your justice and your judgment if all that you were giving to us was the justice of your holy character. But praise be to God this morning, Lord. You've invited us into intimacy with you. You don't ask us to fit you in the convenience of our own life but you call us, Lord, to turn, to repent, to believe, to obey the gospel that if we're really given over to walking in love, there's the true love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a beautiful, fragrant aroma, pleasing to God. The Lord, we must flee immorality, impurity, covetousness, coarse joking, silly talk, wittiness, that thinks 
that foul humor, obscene language, is acceptable among the body of Christ. Lord, this isn't a call to legalism. This is a call to holiness. And we do this out of a holy fear. Paul says, by the terror of the Lord I persuade men. We live in reverential awe because you are in heaven and we're on earth. And therefore, we come to church, Lord, not for the latest gimmick, but we come to hear your word, to pray, to sing songs of worship, to honor your name, to give praise to you, to adore you. Thank you, Father, for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the freedom that we have in our nation. Lord, we're grateful for the independence we have here to serve you as Christians, and we're grateful for our complete dependence upon you. Lord, we pray for these precious families who lost children this last week because they would not honor a fast during Ramadan. Terrible things. Lord, we pray for the many that were injured. It's up to 280 now in Taiwan to that explosion at the celebration in that pool party there, Lord. We pray for our brother Wayne, who lives a mile from there and was there, and he saw hundreds of bodies, he said, with the flesh just dripping off their bone because of the severe burns. A few have even been reported dead. Many are in critical condition. Lord, the Middle East is on fire. There is conflict all around the world, even here at home. When people lose their identity with Jesus Christ, they'll find it in anything. And so, Lord, may we go to this world. The darker the world becomes, the brighter is the light of the gospel. So we thank you strategically at this time, as said in the book of Esther, for such a time as this, you've called us here at the Cross Church to go into all the world and make disciples. Oh, Lord, may we go and encourage and love and serve and call to repentance those that don't know you. And may we do it with gentleness and respect. Thank you for your grace to us. May we extend it to another. You are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. You, you alone give the healing and grace, the one our hearts worship for. Thank you for this day. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, all God's people said, amen.